Chris, shall we begin again? Sure, yeah, I've got so far a couple of questions. Is Arunachala truly alive and is Shiva himself in the form of a hill visible to the eye even though my mind is not able to grasp it? Also, did Bhagavan ever, or maybe, that, do you want to deal with that first and then there's yes. another? Let, let's deal with that first. Okay. Um, what do you mean by alive? What we call life is the certain physiological processes that are going on in the body. So some bodies we say are living bodies, um, trees and grass and animals and um, humans, we say these are living. Other objects we say are dead because they, we, there are no sign of physiological processes going on. If that is what you mean by life, then Arunachal seems to be just a hill of rock. Of course, there are lots of living trees and so many other things growing on Arunachala, but that is not the real life. Real life, the inner life, is awareness. But the, um, that which truly exists, that which actually exists, is only the pure awareness I am. That is what appears to us in outward form as Arunachala. We think our bodies are not only living, we take these bodies to be, in, to be sentient. We think, I am this body and I am knowing all this. That means Michael is knowing this world. But is Michael actually knowing anything? No. Michael, a, a person called Michael is Jada, is devoid of awareness. What, what knows through Michael is the ego that is aware of itself as I am Michael. So actually all bodies are Jada, all physical things are Jada. But to, in our view, physical things seem to be sentient because we, we in every body, we, um, though we actually experience ego in one body, but we, it seems to us that every other body is sentient just like us. It's just like the body we see, we mistake to be ourselves. So because we, the knower, know this body as I, we assume everybody is also a knower, is also perceiving the world. So um, if I ask, is this person sentient? Is this person sentient? You'll certainly say yes. They they certainly seem to be. In exactly the same way, Arunachala is sentient. That is, Bhagavan said, just like we, out of our ignorance, take this body to be I, Shiva, out of his immense compassion for us, takes this hill to be I. So, um, so just as much as... So long as it seems to be true, but I am this body, it is equally true. Shiva is Arunachala. Arunachala is Shiva. They are one and the same. So Arunachala is God himself in the form of a hill. That doesn't mean that God is limited to a form any more than we are limited to a form. But so long as we limit ourselves to the form of this body and think I am only this body, I am this, I am not this microphone in front of me, I'm not this PC, I'm not this table, I'm not anything else, I'm only this. So long as we have that, that so long as we have that ignorant view of ourselves, God seems to, as Bhagavan says in verse four of, of Uludunapdu, if oneself is a form, the world and God will be likewise. Uh, if oneself is not a form, who can see their forms and how? So, 
so long as we mistake ourselves to be a form, we cannot know God as formless. Even the very idea is some, some people say, oh, no, no, it's wrong to worship God in form. God is infinite and he, worshiping God in form is uh, blasphemy or sacrilege or whatever they may say. But we cannot worship God as formless so long as we don't know ourselves as formless. So long as we know ourselves as a form, we know God. God is for us an idea. We have an idea of God. Um, even if God appears to us in name and form, he's still just an idea. So God is nothing but as an idea. He, ideas are mental forms. So we cannot know God as formless until we know ourselves as formless. Because so long as I'm limited as this form, God seems to be something other than myself. So anything other than what creates the appearance of otherness is only form. So, so long as we limit ourselves as a form, we can know only forms. When we know ourselves as we actually are, then we will know our own actually is our own self, what we is our own real nature. He is, he, he is formless. We are formless, and one formless thing cannot be separate from another formless thing because form. All limitations are forms. If you remove all limitations, what remains is the is the paripurna vastu, the, the, the whole uh, reality, the infinite reality. So Arunachi is actually the infinite awareness that is ever shining in our heart as I. So long as we limit ourselves as a form, it is equally true to say Arunachala is the form of this hill. So Shiva is in the form of the hill. Just like we take Bhagavan, though Bhagavan's teaching is that he is not the body, he is that which is shining in the heart of all of us as I. In our view, he seems to be that, um, that beloved um, person who, uh, who came to Tiruvannamalai at the age of 16 and lived there for 40, 54 years. Um, uh, um, showing grace and compassion and kindness to all, uh, clearing all doubts, showing the path to salvation, that person, we take that person to be Bhagavan. That is not what he actually is. What he actually is, is what is shining in our heart as I. But so long as we take ourselves as this body, it's equally true to say that that, that, that um that beloved, uh, our beloved Sadhguru, Bhagavan Ramana, but he is that that person whom we take to be our beloved Sadhguru Bhagavan Ramana. Uh, so just as Bhagavan seems to be appear in form, Arunachala seems to appear in form. In fact, Bhagavan and Arunachala are one and the same. They're the same. They, they are both only our own real nature. But he has appeared in these different forms in order to turn our attention back within. But in the form of Arunachala, he's teaching through silence. Because of our, the immaturity of our minds, we are not able to understand that silence. So the same Arunachala had to appear in human form as Bhagavan Ramana in order to give us the same teaching that he was giving through silence, give those same teachings in words. And what is it that Arunachala taught to Bhagavan? Tirumbi aham, turning within. Tanei dinamaha kankan, see yourself daily, constantly, with the inner eye, terium, it will be known, and dranayen arunachala, thus you told me my arunachala. 
So what Arunachal obviously didn't teach Bhagavan that in so many words because Arunachal is in Mopomba Hill, so he teaches only through silence. So what Arunachal taught Bhagavan in silence, he has translated for us in words. He has he put it in the language that we can understand. Why we cannot understand his, his silence? Because his silence is ever shiny in our heart. And we are always looking outwards. If we want to understand his silent teaching, we need to turn within, as Bhagavan instructs us to do. If we turn within, we will merge back into that silence and be one with that silence. Until then, our natural is in the form of a hill. Bhagavan is in the form of um, our beloved Sadhguru. I hope that is an adequate answer to that question. And uh, following on from that, also, did Bhagavan ever confirm that on a physical level there is a silent radiation from Arunachala which quietens the mind automatically without any effort on our part? Arunachala is not just silent, radiating silence. Arunachala is silence itself. But in order, we, will, we can benefit from that silence to the extent to which we attune ourselves to it. So in other words, to the extent to which we turn within and subside within, we will experience the silence of our nature, which is ever shining in our heart as I am. From our perspective, it may seem that our nature is radiating silence, Bhagavan is radiating silence. That's only in our view. They are silence itself. They're not radiating silence, they're drawing us back into silence, the silence which is ever... Silence is not something that can be radiated. Sound can be radiated, silence cannot be radiated, silence is just being. So they are drawing us back into our own being. So uh, it, it is something, the grace of Arunachal, the grace of Bhagavan is something far more subtle than something that is radiating. It is drawing us back into our own being. So his mere being, his mere presence is silence. He's not radiating anything. He's just being as he is. And that is silence. And that is the supreme power. The greatest power of all is the power of silence. As Bhagavan said, silence is the original source. From silence arises ego. From ego arises thoughts. From thoughts arise words. So words are the great-grandchild of silence. So if words have any power, how much greater power silence must have? So uh, uh, silence is the supreme power. And he and is not just radiating that silence. He is that silence. By his mere being as he is, he is drawing us back into that silence that is our own real nature. I hope that's an adequate answer to that question. Okay, next question. Um, is it possible to surrender our will to Bhagavan and gain moksha without practicing self-inquiry? I know in many occasions you mentioned that self-inquiry and surrender are two faces of one coin. But self-inquiry entails practicing, while surrender, I think, entails faith and love, a blind one. So again, can one liberate himself from the bondage of samsara by a surrender only? 
<clears throat> that is surrender is not just surrender of our will. Surrender of our will is, of course, necessary. But we cannot surrender our will fully without surrendering ourselves. But so long as we can experience ourselves as a, a separate being, we will inevitably, to a greater or lesser extent, have likes, dislikes, desires, fears, and so on. This is inevitable. We cannot avoid this totally. So we can surrender our will to him to some extent, but not fully without surrendering ourselves. Uh, surrendering ourselves means surrendering ego. The nature of ego is to rise, stand, and flourish by attending to anything other than itself, but to subside and dissolve back into its source by attending to itself. So um, that's why Bhagavan says in the first sentence of the 13th paragraph of Nana, Anma Chintane Tavira, Vera Chintane Kalamba Vadaku, Satram Idum Kodamal, Apmanishta Paranai Irupade, Tanai Isanaku Alipadam. That, that means um, being Apmanishtaparam, one who is firmly uh, established as oneself, not giving even the slightest room to the rising of any thought other than Apmachintana. In other words, other than literally it means thought of oneself, it implies self-attentiveness, is giving oneself to God. What that implies is we need to be so keenly self-attentive but we thereby give no room to the rising of any other thought. When we are so keenly self-attentive that we give no room to the rising of any other thought, we are thereby remaining as we actually are. That is being Atmanishtaparan. And Bhagavan says, Atmanishtaparanai irupadei, irupadei, that A means implies alone. That alone is giving ourselves to God. So we cannot, we cannot surrender, we can partially surrender by trying to surrender our will. But we cannot surrender ourselves completely without uh, self-investigation. That is why Bhagavan didn't just talk about surrender. He talked about apmasamapanam. Apmasamapanam means surrendering oneself. What is the self that has to be surrendered? Obviously, we can't surrender what we actually are. We can only surrender what we are not. So the self that we have to surrender is ego. That is the... So that is what we are to surrender. We are to surrender ourselves, and we cannot surrender ourselves without knowing ourselves as we actually are. So long as we know ourselves as I am this person, we, we, we still are remaining separate. In order to, to surrender ourselves completely, we need to know ourselves as we actually are. Then only this ego will subside. So, um, Though surrender may begin before self-investigation, it can it can be it can reach its culmination only through self-investigation. So the simple answer is uh, yes, surrender is the direct means to know ourselves. But surrender, the culmination of the path of surrender, the pinnacle of the path of surrender, is is this Atmavachara. I can put it in another term. The, the, the pinnacle of all spiritual endeavors is bhakti, is love. The pinnacle of the path of bhakti is to give oneself wholly to God. The pinnacle, that is surrender, the pinnacle of the path of surrender, that the culmination of the path of surrender is self-investigation. Only by turning within 
act and we sink back into him and give ourselves wholly to him because he is that which is always shining in our heart as I. So long as we remain separate from him, we haven't surrendered ourselves to him. So it's only by turning within and sinking back into our heart that we can truly surrender ourselves to him. That's why Bhagavan says in verse 26 of Uli Naptu, uh, if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Ego itself is everything. Therefore, investigating what it is, what this ego is, is giving up everything. So if you want to give up ego and everything else, of course, when we, give, oh, we can give up everything else only when we give up ego. Because as, so long as there's e if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. So in order to give up everything, we need to give up ego. And in order to give up ego, we need to investigate ourselves. So ultimately, we have to come to this. We, we, we can't escape it. If you want to know yourself, if you want to, if you want to see the sun, you can't see the sun without looking at it. If you look at the sun, what will happen? You'll be blinded. You'll never see anything else. We see ourselves as we actually are. We will be blinded. We'll be, we cannot see anything else. We can only see the eternal sun of pure awareness, which alone is what actually exists. That is Bhagavan. That is our natural. That is the God to whom we have to surrender ourselves. I hope that's an adequate answer to that question. Uh, the next question. And, oh, one more thing on that. Sorry. You, you, you said um, self-investigation requires practice. Um, and you, you said uh, surrender requires love and faith. And uh, you said blind. Firstly, true faith is not blind. Faith isn't the true, true faith. That is a term in Sanskrit that is the closest equivalent to the English term faith used in a religious context. The term in Sanskrit is sraddha, but sraddha is never blind. Sraddha is the inner clarity we get. But by surrendering ourselves more and more, by going more and more within, we get more and more clarity. So true faith is never blind. True faith is the, is the, is the clearest knowledge of all. And that is what shines in us as Viveka, which is what gives us the, the wisdom to recognize that true happiness lies within ourselves, and therefore we have to turn within to know what we actually are. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing is the idea that we can surrender ourselves without practice is completely wrong. Surrender, surrender isn't like just a matter of saying, oh, I surrender myself to God, and then I can do whatever I want. It's not like that. Surrender means we have to surrender our will wholly. That means every, every movement of our mind away from ourself is under the sway of our Vishaya Vasanas. Those Vasanas are the seeds that give rise to all our likes and dislikes and so on. So without eradicating these Vasanas, we cannot truly surrender ourselves to God. And without, without surrendering the root of the Vasanas, so long as there's ego, there will inevitably be Vasanas. So, the, the sur surrender requires patient and persistent practice. Ultimately, we recognize that the, the most effective practice to surrender ourselves is self-investigation. But even before we come to self-investigation, even if you're trying to surrender yourself by cultivating love for God, for meditating your name or form of God or doing whatever, you, it still requires practice because the nature of the mind is constantly to be going outwards. So long as the mind is going outwards, 
seeking this pleasure and that pleasure or um, seeking satisfaction in doing good works or whatever it may be, we have still not surrendered ourselves to God. So we have to stop this outward going inclination of the mind and turn the mind within. Then only we are truly surrendering ourselves to God. So it requires practice. Surrender is all about, all about that true surrender, the path of surrender. And the complete surrender is the cessation of all effort. But until the surrender becomes complete, practice is necessary. We need to persevere in trying more and more to surrender our will to him to uh, yield ourselves to him, give ourselves wholly to him. So people, some people think, oh, this path of self-investigation is difficult. Therefore, Bhagavan said, we can also surrender, so I'll surrender instead. <laughs> surrender is not at all easy. When difficulties come in your life, are you when you're bereaved or when illness comes or when calamities come and when you're faced with insurmountable problems, are you able to remain calm and peaceful and unagitated by them? If you are, then that is a, that is a true surrender. But we're not. Of course, we're agitated by the thing. Of course, we're disturbed when our loved ones pass away or when someone we love is ill or when we face uh, material difficulty, financial difficulties, all these things. We, we may try to surrender ourselves, but... If we would truly surrender, we, nothing would disturb us. Neither the joys of life nor the sorrows of life would, would disturb us. But the fact is, we are, we are disturbed. Inevitably, if we're honest with ourselves, there are so many things that disturb us in one way or another. So we are not yet surrendered. So we have to practice. practice. Surrender requires great uh, and persistent practice. And ultimately, that practice is nothing but self-investigation. But even before we come to the path of self-investigation, we can be trying as much as possible to surrender our will, but we can surrender it fully only by coming to this path of self-investigation. But either before we come to the path of self-investigation or after, practice is required. Practice, it's all about practice. If practice wasn't required, then what is the need of any teachings? Why should we be told to surrender ourselves if we can surrender without practice? It obviously practice is needed. I hope that adequately answers that. Okay, um, it's my turn to say it. <laughs> um, can we focus on the image of Arunachala in our heart as an aid to get this to the self? As I find it easier to concentrate on a form. Concentrating on the form of Arunachala is very good. Arunachala, the form of Arunachala, as Bhagavan explains in verse 10 of, 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 um, of, of, of Arunachala Patikam, Arunachala has a special power. In what Bhagavan says in verse 10 is, Patanam Pudume, I've seen, a, I've seen something new. That may, in, that, in this context, it means I've seen something wonderful. Vir Vali Kanta Paravatam. Uh, this hill that uh, forcibly attracts the soul. Orutarum uh, idane ortidum weirin. Of the soul who thinks of it even once, that, that we're, that soul, 
the, the shesti. Shesti means the, the activity or the mischievous activity of that soul. In other words, the mental activity of the soul who thinks of it even once, or do key. Bringing about the subsidence of mental activity of those who think of it even once, oru tanadu abhimukamaha itu, pulling it to face itself for one. Uh, uh, it, to face itself for one, what he implies by that is, if Aaron actually is the one, then he is that which is shining in our heart as I. He cannot be something other than ourself. If he is one without a second, he cannot be anything other than ourself. So, uh, what he what he implies by oru tanadu abhimukamaha to pulling to face itself for one implies uh, drawing the attention back within, because Arunachal is always shining in our heart uh, as I. Etu adai tan bol chedu, making it motionless like itself. That is, so long as our mind is going outwards, it's active. When he draws our mind back within, it becomes motionless like it's himself. Motionless means achala. Achala means, chala means, chalana means moving. Achala means unmoving, motionless. Um, of Inuya, that sweet soul, Bali column, taking that sweet soul as Bali. Bali means what is offered as a, a sacrificial offering. In other words, it implies the food that is offered as sacrifice to God. Of uh, Inuya, uh, Bali column, uh, that implies he swallows us as his food. Ikten, uh, uh, what a wonder is this? It's an expression of wonder. Uh, and then he says, Otumin weekal. Ulam adanil weekali aranamagirie. Otu means a thinking, implies here. Uh, we min means be saved, O souls, by thinking of this, um, of this great Aranagiri who, um, the, the killer of the soul, um, who shines in the heart. So that what Bhagavan implies here is if we think of the name or form of Aranachala, that has a special power to uh, subdue the outward going activity of the mind, to draw the mind back within to face itself, thereby to make it motionless by, like itself, and thereby to feed on it. So, yes, yeah, thinking of Aranachala, thinking of the form of Aranachala, that, for, that form of Aranachala has a special power to draw our mind within. But we must be willing to yield ourselves to that power. That Aranachala is always trying to draw our attention within. If we insist on clinging to the outward form, we are resisting what he, he's trying to pull us within. We're trying to go outwards. So we, with the, the more we think of the form with love, the more we'll be willing to yield ourselves to that inward pull. That's why the, the nature of the real guru is always to turn us back within, not let us just... That, that is devotion to the outward form of guru whether in the form of a hill as Aranachala or in the form of a, of a human as Bhagavan, that, that devotion is very good. But we need to go beyond devotion to form. But devotion to form leads us to the formless devotion. That's why, for example, when, um, 
when Janaki Mata, who was a, a great devotee of Bhagavan, she often used to visit the ashram. Once when she came, she, um, she saw Bhagavan returning from Gosala, and there were just two attendants with him. So she thought, or one or two, I'm not sure. So he was almost alone. So she thought this is a very good opportunity. So she approached him. She fell at his feet, put her forehead on his feet and held his ankles. Bhagavan looked down at her with a smile and asked, what are you doing? She said, I'm holding the feet of my guru. Bhagavan said, this body is perishable. These feet are perishable. If you take these feet to be the feet of your guru, you will be disappointed. The feet of your guru are shining within you as I. Cling to those feet. They alone will save you. So that is the function of the outward form of guru is to turn us within. What is the teaching that Aranacha gave to Bhagavan? Turning within, daily see yourself with the inner eye. So the whole purpose of the form of Aranachala is to turn our mind within. So we must be willing to yield ourselves to that. And as Bhagavan says in, um, in verse 8 of Upadesha Undia, Anya Bhavatin Abanahamahum Ananya Bhavame Undipara Anatinamutamona Undipara. That means rather than Anya Bhava. Anya Bhava means meditation in which we're taking God to be something other than ourselves. So long as we're meditating on any name or form, whether it's the name or form of Arunachara or Bhagavan or Krishna or Rama or any any God, Shiva or any God, we we meditate on any form, that form is something other than what the form we seem to be. So that is Anya Baba. So Bhagavan says, rather than Anya Baba, Ananya Baba. Um, Ananya Baba, and then he says, Abanahamahum Ananya Baba. That means Ananya Baba in which he is I. That implies the Ananya Baba. Ananya Baba means meditating on what is not other than ourselves, in which he is I. That is with the understanding. But Aranachri is that which is shining in our heart as I, meditating on him as not other than ourselves. That means as I alone, as ourself alone, that is anatinum utamum, that is the best among all. So meditating on Aranachri in name and form or meditating on Bhagavan in name and form is very good. But we shouldn't stop with that. The more our love for him increases, if we truly love him, we should follow what he taught us to do. He taught us not to cling to his outward form, to, but to turn within. He didn't say don't, that, that is, clinging to the outward form is good. So rather than clinging to any other form, clinging to the form of our natural or Bhagavan is best. But we need to go beyond that. We need to go deeper within. We need to turn our attention away from all forms back towards ourselves. That love to turn within will be cultivated by meditating with love on the outward form of Arunachala or Bhagavan. Arunachala Ramana is that, is that outward name or that pair of outward names and forms that have a special power to turn our mind back within, to give us the love to turn within. But we must be willing to yield ourselves to that. We must be willing to cooperate. He's trying to pull our attention within. We must, be, we must yield ourselves to that by trying to turn within. Is that an adequate answer to your question? Okay. It seems so. Yeah. 
Okay, so next question. Um, it's actually in two parts. Did Bhagavan ever recommend things we must do that support self-inquiry, i.e. Uh, food, listening to devotional music, type of company we keep, type of work, etc.? Bhagavan didn't prescribe things. He didn't say, he, Bhagavan didn't give do's and don'ts. Bhagavan in Guru Vachakukavai, there's one verse in which Bhagavan says, the guru who gives do's and don'ts to the disciple who comes to be free of the burden of, of, uh, burden of past karmas, the guru who gives do's and don'ts is both Brahma and Yama. Brahma means the god of creation. Yama is the god of death. So, so long as we are doing anything, the cycle of birth and death, samsara, uh, continues. So if Guru gives us, uh, tells us, do this, don't do that, these do's and don'ts are just perpetuating the cycle of, of, of doing, of karma. The true Guru tells you, just be. How to just be? By turning within. So the, the, the true Guru is not, the jnana Guru is not here to tell us what to do, tell us to refrain from all doing by clinging to our own being. So Bhagavan did say, as far as food is concerned, that mitta sattvika ahara niyama, the, the, the restriction of eating moderate quantities of sattvic food, it, it, it's, uh, helps to increase the sattvic quality of the mind, and that, the tactic guna of the mind, and that is, is a help in this part of self-investigation. So, yes, I mean, Bhagavan gave that, Bhagavan did, and Bhagavan said of all the niyamas, of all the uh, restrictions, uh, uh, that is the best among all. And that's a very simple thing. We don't have to do anything. We all, every, all of us are eating every day. So eating moderate quantities of sattvic food is not so much a doing as a refraining from doing anything else. We, we, are, we are just avoiding eating non-sattvic food. We're avoiding eating excessive quantities or insufficient quantities. Or eating insufficient quantities is also not mitta. Mitta means moderate. Because if we eat too little, um, we're going to suffer the consequence. We need to eat just enough to sustain this body. And the right, the right quantity and the right quality of food, that will be conducive to a, a sattvic state of mind, which will be, uh, help us in our path of self-investigation. Other than this, Bhagavan gave almost no do's and don'ts. Of course, Bhagavan, Bhagavan set the example of uh, ahimsa in his life. And he also, there's some verse in Guru Vachakukavai, for instance, Bhagavan says, since we have no power to restore the life that has been taken, we have no right to take the life of any living being. So Bhagavan did exemplify and teach us the path of ahimsa, not harming other creatures, or not even harming ourselves, avoiding harm. I mean, the first harm is, of course, rising as ego. That's the original ahimsa. So we can't observe perfect ahimsa without surrendering ourselves completely. But so long as we rise as ego, we should try to uh, act in such a way but causes minimum harm to others. Um, so in this way, Bhagavan did uh, indicate certain principles by which we should live. 
but he didn't go into details of you should do like this, you should get up at six o'clock in the morning, have a cold bath, sit facing east and um, doing so many hundreds of japa. Not like that. Not, not like many gurus do. Bhagavan just... Bhagavan is, uh, shows us the way. The way is not doing. The way is subs- to go back within and subside within. So he 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 pointed out certain things that will help us in this inward journey, but he wasn't a he he described the path. He showed the path. He didn't um, um, he didn't he wasn't prescriptive in. Oh, you must do this. You mustn't do that. Um, but Bhagavan wasn't concerned so much about doing or not doing. The problem is, who is the doer? The doer, if, if, we, if we are doing something, I am doing. If we are not doing anything, I'm doing nothing. In both cases, we have a sense of doership because we're identifying with the body, speech, and mind, which are either doing or not doing. So the, the problem is not the doing or not doing. The problem is the doer. The doer is ego. That is what we need to investigate. If we investigate the truth of ego, ego will thereby cease to exist and um, pure being alone will remain. So that is what Bhagavan's path is about. So though he did give some other clues that would help us in this path, he, Bhagavan wasn't, um, uh, wasn't uh, he didn't, as a general rule, he didn't prescribe do's and don'ts. Yes, he might. He might give an individual response to an individual person who came to him directly. Sometimes, sometimes, but the general rule: Bhagwan wasn't about doing. Bhagwan was about being. So the next question is: Is there a simple book you can recommend for me to read? The simplest and best. Um, uh, that is the book that uh, contains Bhagavan's teachings in its purest form, but also in a very, very simple way. But though it's simple, it's also very, very deep, is Nana. It's a work that we can read again and again and again. And if we read Nana and put it into practice, the more we put it into practice, the, the, the more we will see the depth and subtlety of meaning in it. That is the full meaning we cannot understand when we first read it. But if we follow what Bhagavan teaches us in Nana and goes, go deeper and deeper in the practice, the deeper we go, the, the more meaningful the text will become. So if any one book is to be uh, recommended, that is a very good book. But I wouldn't recommend just that. I would recommend all of Bhagavan's original writings because a lot of things in um, Nana we will understand more clearly if we studied Uludunapada, if we studied Upadeshundia. The, these are the, these three texts, Upadeshundia, Nana, and, um, and uh, Uludunapada. These are the, four, uh, the three texts in which Bhagavan sets out his the basic principles of his teaching. Other important works are like, for example, Anmavide. That's also a very important uh, work. Um, but... All these Upadesha works we cannot understand fully without also studying Arnacha Stuti Panchakam. Because as Bhagavan said, Bhakti is the mother of jnana. So Bhagavan's teaching, if we read Uludunapadu, it may to, 
it may seem to some people, oh, all it is all this dry jnana, um, but we, we cannot fo follow this path of jnana, this path of self-investigation, without all-consuming love. And that love aspect of it is what Bhagavan brings out most clearly in Aranatya Stuti Panchakam. So I would recommend all these works. Um, but if you want to have a good starting point, there's no better starting point than Nana. That's the best introduction to Bhagavan's teachings. Right, okay. So next question. Is I am substance in brackets gold or form? So no, let me try and understand this. Oh, is I am substance gold or form bangle? Similarly, does I am ultimately have to be surrendered? What does I am mean? I, I am means I exist. So I am is refers to our being. Um, our being, being is obviously formless. Um, I am is also, the, the word I always refers to awareness. When, when Shiva Prakashan Play asked Bhagavan, uh, Swami Nana, who am I? Bhagavan replied, Arive Nan. Arivu means awareness. So awareness alone is I. So it's, it's when, when we say I am, the I that is saying I am, is awareness. Am is the existence. So I am uh, is is such it. The, the, the being awareness, pure being, pure awareness is always aware of itself as I am. So I am refers to such it, our own being. Um, but what we take ourselves to be, all the adjuncts that we identify ourselves with, this body, mind, and so on, this bundle of five sheaves, these are all forms. But the, the, that which is the, uh, the, the actual underlying, that is ego, is the false awareness, I am this body. In that false awareness, the, the I am portion is, 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 our, is, our, is such it, is our being awareness, which is formless. The, the body is a form. So... We, we, when we investigate ourselves, what we are investigating is the basic awareness I am. That leads us, that by investigating that, we merge back into our source, the pure I am, and the form drops off. So I am is not a form, it is the substance. What, what, what is the form of I am? What is the shape of I am? Is, is I am something we can... It, it is just the basic awareness. It's a being which cannot be limited or as this or that. Now we seem to have limited our being as to, the, to the extent of this body, but that is not what we actually are. I am in its pure condition, bereft of adjuncts, that is formless. The adjuncts are all forms. I, I hope that's a clear answer to that one. Of course, it's called an I thought, isn't it? When Bhagavan talks about I thought, he's referring to ego. That is the adjunct mixed awareness I. When he talks about I am, he's talking about our being. Our being is not the I thought. The I thought is the, um, is the adjunct mixed awareness, I am this body. But the pure awareness I am, that is not a thought. That is, the, that is Brahman. Brahman is I am. I am Brahmasmi. 
tattvamasi. We that is what we actually are. Our own being is Brahman. That is, uh, Michael is not Brahman. Chris is not Brahman. None of these people here are Brahman. What is Brahman? Is the I am that is shiny in each of these people, in each one of us. Now, next thought. So Brahman shines forth when when the adjuncts drop down. What remains is Brahman, the pure I am. So last question we have up to now. Um, please, uh, in our real nature, as I, nothing else exists. Aham kevalam purnam. I is not even aware of itself. Does it mean the rising of ego is not recognized at all by I and anything other than I-ness is pointless? Um, it's not quite correct to say I is not aware of itself. I, I is awareness. So awareness is always aware of ourselves. We cannot be aware without being aware that we are aware. And being aware that we are aware entails awareness of our being, entails the awareness that we exist. So, but it is a, we are never an object of awareness. So we don't know ourselves as an object. We know ourselves just by being ourselves, by being the awareness that we are. So it does, that doesn't mean the awareness is an object known by us. So in that sense, we are not knowing ourselves in the sense that we're not knowing ourselves as an object, but we are knowing ourselves just because our very nature is awareness and awareness always knows itself. Um, uh, sorry, but I've forgotten what the rest of the question was. Can you repeat it, Chris, please? Yeah. Uh, in our real nature as I, nothing else exists. Aham kevalam purnam. Yes. I is not even aware of itself. Does it mean the rising of ego is not recognized at all by I and anything other than I-ness is pointless? That, that is, there is only one I. That one I in its pure condition is, as you say, uh, anantam, limitless, cableum, uh, pornum, everything. That, that for, in, the, in the view of the pure I, the pure awareness, there is nothing other than itself. Ego is that same pure awareness, seemingly mixed and conflated with adjuncts. So ego, ego is the adjunct mixed awareness I am. I, sorry, the adjunct mixed awareness, I am this person. So long as we're aware of ourselves as I am this person, we know other things. But all those other things exist only in the view of ourselves as ego. When we, when we as ego turn our attention within to see who am I, in other words, when we turn our attention away from all, all phenomena, away from all the adjuncts with which we are now identified, and uh, turn our attention within, the adjuncts and everything else drops off, and the pure I am alone remains. The pure I am never rose as ego. Um, what rises as ego is only ego. Ego is nothing other than that pure awareness, but the pure awareness is not ego. Just like the, the, the snake is nothing but a rope, but we can't say the rope is a snake. If the rope is what appears as the snake, 
But the rope is ever remains as a rope. It's not affected by the appearance. It's only in the view of the onlooker that the rope seems to be a snake. The, the onlooker in this case is ego. So ego seems ego and everything known by ego exists only in the view of ego. What actually exists is only the fundamental awareness I am. But ego could not even seem to exist without that fundamental awareness, because as ego, we're always aware I am. But we are not aware just I am. We are always aware of I am mixed and conflated with adjuncts. That's what distinguishes ego from our real nature. So in substance, ego is nothing but our real nature, the substance being the pure awareness I am. The difference between ego and our pure awareness is just a difference in appearance. Like the difference between the snake and the rope is just a difference in appearance. Actually, they're one and the same thing. What seems to be a snake is actually just a rope. Um, so the substance is the same. The appearance is different. Likewise, ego in substance is nothing but the pure awareness I am. It seems to be different because it's, in its view, it's mixed and conflated with adjuncts. The pure awareness I am is never mixed and conflated. It's only in the view of ego that this pure awareness I am seems to be mixed and conflated with adjuncts. And that adjunct mixed awareness is what is called ego. If we, so long as we're looking away from ourselves at other things, we seem to be ego, because it's only ego that knows the existence of other things. If the same attention that we are now using to know other things, if we turn that attention back towards ourselves to see who am I, by, by turning our attention back within, we are thereby letting go of everything else. So everything else drops off. And we ego subsides back into its source and remains as the pure I am, which it always ever was. Just like if you look very carefully at the snake, what happens to the snake? It merges back into a rope that we see, we recognize that what seemed to be a snake was always only a rope. It was never a snake. Likewise, what, what, what now seems to be ego is actually pure awareness. And when we, if we turn within to see that pure awareness, we will see that pure awareness never became ego. It was always only pure awareness. So uh, the ultimate truth is there's no ego at all. That's why Bhagavan says in verse 17 of Upadesh Undia, Manatin Uruve Maravadu Chaba Manamenum Andrile Undipara Magam Nerakumid Undipara. If we, if without forgetting, that means without. Uh, uh, without allowing our attention to be diverted away towards anything else, if we investigate the form of the mind, that means the ego, if we investigate it without allowing our attention to slip away, it will be clear that there's no, well, he doesn't even say it will be clear. He will say, he says, there's no such thing as mind at all. The implication is it will be clear to us that there's no such thing as mind at all, because what actually exists is only the pure awareness. So the out. What is called the manonasa, the destruction of mind or eradication of ego, is nothing but seeing what actually exists is only, is only pure awareness, and there's never been any such thing as ego. Killing the snake is just seeing that it is, as soon as you see that the snake is a, a rope, you've killed the snake. But when you kill the snake, you see there never actually was a snake there to kill in the first place. Because it, even when it seemed to be a snake, it was always only a rope. So the ego is nothing but 
the pure awareness I am, seen in a distorted form as I am this person. I am such and such a person. I am this body. I hope that adequately answers that. Uh, next question, uh, Mary wants to ask you directly. Mary? Okay. Um, yes, the Vishaya Vasanas, they are linked to what happens according to destiny. Um, destiny determines what we are to experience. But Vasanas are our inclination to experience things. So, it is the vasanas that sprout as vishayas. Vishayas means everything that we experience is vishayas. But which particular vishayas we should experience is determined by prarabdha. Prarabdha is the fruit of our past actions that we've been given in this lifetime to experience. But we always have the choice. that Now there are so many vishayas are presented to us in accordance with our prarabdha. But we, Bhagavan often used to say, Prarabdha affects only the outward turn mind. It can never prevent us turning within. Mm. So long as we're looking outwards, we have to experience the prarabdha. If we look within, the prarabdha, so to speak, will go on, but we will be unaffected by it. If you go to a cinema and you sit in a cinema, you, you can't, but what film is to be shown that day, it's already predetermined. You can't, you can't, if, if you don't like a particular scene, you can't change it. You just have to sit through it. If you don't want to see it, what do you have to do? You have to close your eyes. So when we're turning within, we're, so to speak, closing our eyes on this Pararabdha. We are turning our back on it. Because Pararabdha is only for ego. When we turn within, ego is sinking back into its source. Yes, but it's because you said once that, for example, if you study to be a doctor, it can be both pararabdha and also your your vishaya vasana. Yeah, that is, if, if something is destined to happen, most things that are destined to happen in our life, it, it involves some action on our part. If, if you're to become a doctor, you obviously have to study. So that's so you will be made to do those actions, whatever actions are necessary to experience your prarabdha. But the majority of actions we do because we want to do them. Mm -hmm. Most people who study hard to become doctors, they want to become doctors. So though they are being made to study in accordance with their prarabdha, they're also being made to study according. It's also their their own vasanas. So in other words, certain things. We, we can say, we can call prarabdha God's will, because it's God who's allotted, it's God who's selected which fruit we should experience in this lifetime. So if it's our destiny in this lifetime to be a doctor, that is the fruit of our past action that he's chosen for us in this lifetime. So that is his will. The chances are, if most people who become doctors they become doctors because they want to become doctors. So often our will happens to be in, uh, in tune with his will. Um, but we, it still, so long as to the extent that any action is driven by our will, driven by our, we, we, to whatever extent we are doing it under the sway of our vasanas, whether it happens to be in accordance with God's will or not, 
Mm. It is still a gamya. Mm -hmm. Supposing we surrender ourselves completely, we turn within, then whatever actions may be done by the body, speech, or mind will be only according to his will. Because we are not interfering. But so long as we arise as ego with likes and dislikes, we are constantly like, oh, I like this, I want this. And so we make effort for it. So the vast majority of our actions of mind, speech, and body are driven by, uh, we we act under the sway of our vasanas. In other words, they're driven by our will. Some of them may also be in accordance with God's will. Any actions we do that fructify, supposing you, you decide you, you're not satisfied with your present job, you apply for some other job, which you think will give you a better salary or more job satisfaction or something. If, if that effort fructifies, then that is God's will. If it doesn't fructify, it's not God's will. But why did you do that action? You did that, you, you made that effort to apply for that other job because you wanted to do so. Mm-hmm. If it turns out that that fructifies, it fructifies because you were also made to do it by grace. But mm-hmm. we, we can't tell to what extent grace is making us do any action and to what extent it is, uh, it is driven solely by our will. Mm-hmm. Most, most actions are driven by our will. Some of them also are driven by grace. If they fructify, it's because they're driven by grace, by the will of God, that is. When you say fructify, you mean, it means like work out? Or yeah, in- yeah, yeah. In that, in, in this context, okay. I mean, if you if you if you, if you want to, to change job, if you see a, an advertisement for a job and you think, oh, this job would be nice, whether because the salary is better or you think it'll be a more pleasant working environment or whatever it is, then you a- apply for that job. You do so because you 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 your according to your judgment that will be better for you. If yeah. it if you get the job as you wanted then you have to accept that is God's will. But if you don't get it, you also have to accept that's God's will. So whatever, whatever happens is according to his will. But we are free to use our own judgment and think this is better, that is better. But we, cannot, we, we can make decisions, we can make efforts, but our efforts and decisions will, will seem to bear fruit in this lifetime only if it's in accordance with his will. But what is actually bearing fruit is not our present effort, it's the effort, but we, the, the will of from previous life, the actions we did in previous lifetime, because whatever we experience in this lifetime is prarabdha, which was allotted before this body ca- came into existence. Mm-hmm. So nothing is actually fructifying, it seems to fructify. Mm-hmm. I want to. I want this job. I apply for it. I get the job. Then it seems to me my efforts have fructified. Mm-hmm. But it, it's not this present effort that is fructifying. It's some past effort, but that is hidden from us. It seems to us it's because I applied for the job I got it. But but even some things like for for example, Bhagavan. So, um, I seem to remember that at some point he he wanted to leave or he said, I'm getting too much attention. So he tried to leave Arunachala and it didn't work out. So it didn't work out. He was still Pararabda that he would try. It wasn't from his will. um, That is, in in Bhagavan's case, he's got no individual will of his own. The reason he left is not because he was getting too much attention, because he noticed that other sadhus were jealous of him. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Because people are naturally drawn to him. He didn't want to di- uh, disturb others 
so he thought it's better to leave. But when he tried to leave, it didn't happen. So that is, so both his effort to leave and the, 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 the fact that he, 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 that effort was obstructed, both are according to the divine will, because Bhagavan has no individual will. There's no ego there to have any likes or dislikes. Mm-hmm. It okay. was only, only out of his compassion for those sadhus who were jealous of him, but he wanted to leave. Mm-hmm. So Vishayavasanas are from ego, not from God's will. No, no. God's will may sometimes decide. I mean, our prarabdha, everything we experience, all vishayas, the seeds of all vishayas are, are, are vishayabhasanas. Mm-hmm. So whatever we experience, it's a projection of our vishayabhasanas. But which vishayabhasanas we should experience should be projected as vishayas, that is decided by prarabdha. But it, it feels so intertwined, like our it is, it is, it is. what happens outside. Yeah. It is so intertwined. That's why there's no point in breaking our head trying mm-hmm. to understand. What we need to understand is allowing our attention to go away from ourselves. Our attention moves away from ourselves only under the sway of Vishayabhasanas. The more we allow ourselves to be swayed by Vishayabhasanas, any particular Vishayabhasana, the more we're strengthening that. So in order to weaken the Vishayabhasanas, we should cling to self-attentiveness. So it's not the details that we need to understand. We need to understand the basic principles. If we understand the basic principles, leave the details up to Bhagavan to take care of. That's why Krishna says in Gita, the secret of karmas cannot be understood by anyone but me. So if we're trying to work out which is Agamya, which is Prarabdha, and trying to that's all unnecessary. That's allowing our attention to go away from ourselves. If we understand the basic principles, Whatever effort we make in this lifetime cannot change what, whatever outward effort, that is effort to experience anything, that cannot change what is destined to happen. What is destined to happen is going to happen. As Bhagavan said, Endrum Naduvadudu, Enmuichikonum Naduvadu. This is what he wrote in the second sentence of the note for, he wrote for his mother. What, what is not to happen will not happen however much effort is made. Uh, what is to happen will not stop however ob- much obstacle is made, however much obstruction is made. So we are free to, to want something. We are free to try for it. We are not free to experience it unless it's already destined. And then it, we would experience anyway whether we try for it or not. Mm-hmm. So, but and he says in the next sentence, tinnam, this indeed is certain. Mm-hmm. Therefore, being silent is best, is good. He doesn't even say best, he just says being silent is good. Mm-hmm. Bhagavan is a master of understatement. <laughs> and I have another question because yes. I have a very strong fear of something. Yes. And, um, so it's, I am guessing it's better to turn within in those moments and not care whether to confront the fear or avoid confronting it. By confronting it, you're giving it, you're, you're strengthening it. Because if you attend, if you, when you confront it, you're, 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 you're giving life to it. 
That mm-hmm. is our attention is what gives life. to Why vasanas are strengthened by our allowing ourselves to be swayed by them and they're weakened by not allowing ourselves to be swayed by them because our attention is the water that gives is the, the water and nourishment that gives life to the vasanas. So the best way to deal with any vasana, whether it's a vasana of, uh, of desire or fear or whatever it is, which are all interconnected. If you fear something, you, 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 we fear things only because we desire something else. If you, if you fear that something is going to do some harm to you, it's because you want to be free of, of harm. So fear is always the flip side of desire. Mm-hmm. We fear death because we desire life. If we didn't desire life, we wouldn't fear death. So, um, but the only way to deal with any vasana, whether it's a like or a dislike, whether it's a desire or a fear, whatever in whatever form it manifests, the only way to deal with it, or the most effective way to deal with it, is to turn within. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because um, I was saying, like confronting it, as in like not trying to avoid it happening. Or to being in a situation where the thing I yeah. fear happens. It's reasonable. If you're afraid of something, we, 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 we are not to go and embrace tigers. So, I mean, it's obviously it's sensible. If, some, if something causes you fear, you try to avoid it. But if it comes anyway, you should turn your attention within. You shouldn't allow yourself to be, um, to mm-hmm. be uh, uh, swayed by that. Yeah, it's not like in psychology where they tell you to confront it and then be free of it. No, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's not like that. It's not like that. Okay. And I have one last question. Um, I'm quite talkative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. can I just say yeah, one thing? Yeah. Someone, someone asked me a question recently and he said, we have to control our vasanas. I said, no, it's not necessary to control our vasanas. What? Bhagavan asks us to do is not to be controlled by our vasanas. The problem is that our vasanas are controlling us. We allow ourselves to be swayed by them. We don't have to try and control them. If we simply avoid being swayed by them, avoid allowing them to control us, they lose their strength. Mm -hmm. So we're not confronting them. We're just turning our back on them. When we turn our back on them, they lose their strength and wither away. Yeah, because confronting is giving attention. Yes. Strengthening. In, yeah, but... in Partha Sri Ramana, Sadhuam uh, translates uh, um, uh, a Tamil proverb. Without use when left to stay, iron and mischief rust away. So, uh, um, if, if you leave iron uh, on its own, it'll just rust away. Likewise, if you leave mischief aside, if you don't allow yourself to be swayed by the mischievous tendencies, they will wither away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, I have a last question. I'm quite talkative. And um, Bhagavan said that when you turn within, naturally breath and, and speech um, subside. Yes. But, so is it like a precondition to like not talk so much? <laughs> all that is required don't fight against the tendency to talk just turn your attention within the tendency will um will uh, lose its strength mm-hmm. if you think oh it, i'm too talkative i must uh, i must maintain mona i shouldn't talk 
then your attention again is on these actions. Your attention is on the person who, who is too talkative. It's Marie who's too talkative. Let Marie be talkative. Why should it concern you? You turn within. Mm -hmm. If okay. to the extent to which you turn within, you are not being swayed by your vasanas, and whatever actions may be done by Mari uh, are thereby being done only in accordance with prarabdha. Mm -hmm. So it may be it may be the destiny of Mari to talk a lot. It certainly seems to be Michael's destiny to talk a lot. I'm jabbering away every day. But yeah, but the same thing. Talk, while we talk, we can still be turned within. We can, indeed, yes, yes. Whatever we are doing, we cannot do anything without existing. And we cannot exist without being aware of our existence. So we are always aware I am. The problem is we are too interested in other things. We're too interested in what we talk about. Yes. Rather than we should be interested. Let, let this person talk whatever, they, whatever they're driven to talk about. Who is it who is talking with? That's what we should be interested in. Yes. Who is this I who is rising with an inclination to talk about this or that? Yes. It's, it's this example of the cow being gently yes, yes. thrown away. It's, yes. it's really helpful because otherwise it becomes just restrictions. and Yeah, yeah. and it becomes, a, it becomes a futile fight. Bhagavan said, another analogy Bhagavan gave is trying to bury your own shadow. Mm -hmm. if, you, if, you're, if you're troubled by the shadow that is often following you around, if you dig a big pit and see your shadow lying in the bottom of a the pit, then you can start filling up the pit. But what happens? Your shadow won't remain at the bottom of the pit. It comes up <laughs> it come, as you fill the pit, the shadow comes up to you. So we can never bury our own shadow. What we should do, if you turn towards the sun, you, you won't be seeing the shadow. You won't be bothered by the shadow. Mm. The shadow seems to exist only because you look at it. Just ignore it. Thank you. Right. So the next question. <clears throat> we have a group of friends who regularly discuss Bhagavan's teaching through WhatsApp. A few of my friends want to know how to encourage ourselves to be in constant self-attentiveness. The answer to that is by patient and persistent practice. Of course, there's, there are aids. The best aid is Bhagavan's teaching, because the more we read and think about Bhagavan's teachings, the more we are encouraged to turn within, because all Bhagavan's teachings are encouraging us to turn within. But merely reading Bhagavan's teachings or thinking about them is insufficient. We have to actually put them into practice. The more we put them into practice, the more our love to turn within will grow. It may be imperceptible. We may feel I've been trying for the past 40, 50 years. I st still don't have sufficient love to turn within. doesn't matter. So long as we are trying. As when, when Bhagavan was asked, what is the sign of progress? He said, perseverance is the only sign of progress. So long as we are persevering, we are moving in the right direction. doesn't matter how many times we fail. So long as we are trying, we are moving in the right direction. Thank you, sir. Thank right. you, sir. Right. Right, so the next one. 
Could Michael talk about the terms awareness, mind and consciousness? Is there any effect is there in effect any difference between them? My that is awareness and consciousness basically mean the same thing. In English we use it in slightly different senses, but more or less that that which is aware or that which is conscious is the same thing. Uh, so we need not uh, we need not um, uh, generally I use the word awareness rather than consciousness, but that is because of um, there's a lot of confusion about the word consciousness. Uh, for example, people talk about conscious thoughts when what they mean is thoughts that we are conscious of or a conscious experience. That means an experience we are conscious of. Um, so the way uh, consciousness is or, or the verb conscious is often used I, makes me a little bit wary of it because it awareness, I think, is a is a less ambiguous term, but even awareness, it can be understood uh, wrongly. So, but it's just, I've, I've learned from experience, in most cases, awareness is a, is a, though basically they mean the same, my preference is for awareness. I think there's less, less room for confusion, but any words can give, can give, that is whatever words we use, we may use a word with one intention, but everyone who hears that word will interpret it in their own way. Um, so there's no such thing as a perfect word. That is, the, the perfect language for Bhagavan's teachings is silence. Because what Bhagavan is talking about is beyond mind and therefore beyond words. But we use words as pointers. So we need not be too particular. Whether we use awareness or consciousness, it doesn't much matter. We're just trying to point in the right direction. Regarding awareness or consciousness on the one hand, a mind on the other hand, the mind is or mind or ego is a form of awareness. That is ego, ego is chitchadagranti. It is the it is the awareness mixed and conflated with jada, with adjuncts. The, 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 adjunct, the the jada portion of ego is this body consisting of five sheaths. In other words, the physical form, the life, the mind, the intellect, and the will. These are all jada. The chit portion of ego is I am. So in the mix, so the mixed awareness, the adjunct mixed awareness, I am this body, that is chit jada granti. What is real in that is the chit portion, the awareness portion. Awareness in its pure condition, as just I am, is not aware of anything other than itself. So the pure awareness I am, that, that is the real awareness. Awareness of anything other than ourself is not real awareness. That is, the awareness that is aware of anything other than itself is what is called ego or mind. That is not real awareness. It is one term that is used for it is chitabhasa. Chittabhasa is often translated as uh, reflection of awareness. That is one meaning of it, but the basic meaning is a semblance of awareness. That is, abhasa means a, a semblance or a likeness. When you look in your mirror and see, uh, see your face in the mirror, what you are seeing is not actually your face. You're just seeing a likeness of your face. So in that sense, a reflection is a likeness of something. It's not the original thing. So 
why is why is ego or mind called chittabhasa, a likeness of awareness or a semblance of awareness? Because it's not real awareness. Why? Because real awareness is aware only of what actually exists. What actually exists is awareness alone. So real awareness is not aware of anything other than itself. The awareness that is aware of anything other than itself is not real awareness because all these other things don't actually exist. Now we see this world, we see this body, we see all these objects, and it seems to us that they exist, but they don't actually exist. They exist only in our view. So being aware of things that don't actually exist is obviously not real awareness. That is why it's called uh, a, a semblance of awareness. So mind or ego is a form of awareness, but it's not the real awareness or pure awareness. The pure awareness is just the fundamental awareness of our own being, I am. The, that same awareness, when seemingly mixed and conflated with adjuncts, is the false awareness called ego or mind. And it is ego or mind that is aware of all other things. So we, we when we talk about awareness, we need to distinguish the pure awareness, I am, from the adjunct mixed awareness, I am so-and-so. And it's the adjunct mixed awareness, I am so-and-so, alone but is aware of all other things. That it's only when we're aware of ourselves as I am this body, but we're aware of other things. In waking and dream, we're aware of ourselves as I am this body. In, now, now it's this body. In dream, it's some other body, but it still seems to be the same body. Um, and in both cases, uh, as soon as we're aware of ourselves as I am this body, we're aware of so many other things. Because this body isn't floating around in, a, in the space of awareness. This body is in a, seems to be in a world. We're surrounded by so many other objects. So but as soon as we limit ourselves as one form, so many other forms seem to exist. But all these forms seem to exist only in the view of that I that is aware of itself as I am the form of this body. That's why Bhagavan says in verse 4 of Uludunaptu, if oneself is a form, the world and God will be likewise. If oneself is not a form, who can see these, their forms and how? The form he's referring to when he says if oneself is a form is obviously the form of a body. In the next uh, verse, he says, the body is a form of five sheaves. So that's what the form he's referring to. If we take ourselves to be a body, the world will seem to be a multitude of forms and God will seem to be some other form. Whatever our idea of God may be, whether even if we think he's some formless spirit, that's still a form. That's still an idea in our mind. We cannot conceive the formless so long as we experience ourselves as a form. When we experience ourselves as formless, as we actually are, we cannot know any forms. So the awareness that is mixed with forms is the unreal awareness called Chittabhasa. The awareness that is devoid of forms and therefore infinite, that is the real awareness called Chit. I hope that's a clear answer to that question. People often talk about awareness in a very loose way. That is, a, a lot of uh, uh, people say, oh, um, that people with a, 
half-baked understanding of Bhagavan's teachings or Vedanta. They say, oh, everything is awareness. So, so long as you realize everything is awareness, that's all you need to, that's all that's required. What do they mean when they say everything is awareness? According to Bhagavan, if ego, in verse 26, Bhagavan says, if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Ego itself is everything. So Bhagavan will agree, yes, everything is awareness, but the awareness that appears as everything is only ego, not the real awareness. Real awareness is the only thing, not everything. That's why Bhagavan, this verse we were talking about today, Bhagavan begins, Oruvana Munne, you who are the one, that means you who are the only one. So long as we see multiplicity, the, the awareness that is aware of multiplicity, as Bhagavan says in verse 13 of Uludunapadu, is ignorance. Only the awareness that is aware of nothing other than itself is real. That is our self. That's why he begins verse 13 by saying, oneself, who is jnana. Jnana there means pure awareness. Oneself who is jnana alone is real. But jnana that is aware of many things is agnana, ignorance. So there's a couple more questions. One of them, he says it can remain till next time. So we can just see how we go. This is... Uh, the second question, actually. Right. J. Krishnamurti talked at great length about this. The one confronting the thoughts, urges, or whatever is thought itself. You will lose if you attempt to change this way. Only way is to be awareness, remain as this. They will fade out and die along with the I thought. I think it's more of a comment on your talk earlier, perhaps, than a question. Yes, sure. yes but um, though there may be some superficial similarities or appear to be some superficial similarities, what J. Krishnamurti is teaching is actually something quite different to what Bhagavan is teaching. J. Krishnamurti says, for example, that um, thoughts create the thinker not the other way around. He says that explicitly. So his understanding of things is very, very different. According to Bhagavan, the first thought is the thought I, that is the thinker. It's only in the view of the thinker that all other thoughts exist. So how can other thoughts exist without a thinker to know them? So it can't be that the thoughts create the thinker. The thinker is nothing but a thought, but the thinker is the first thought. A thought that creates all other thoughts. So if, if, we, if we pay close attention to what Krishnamurti is saying, it's actually very different to what Bhagavan is saying. Some of the things may superficially seem to be different, seem to be the same, but many things are very different. So it's better to, um, if we start bringing in the teachings of others, particularly those who are not whose teachings are not so well attuned to Bhagavan, we tend to get ourselves into a bit of confusion. That's why it's always said in the spiritual path, dig your well in one place. If you, if you study a little bit of Bhagavan, a little bit of Krishnamurti, a little bit of Nisargadatta, a little bit of um, uh, maybe some comparative uh, philosophy, a little bit about uh, Christian mystics, uh, Islamic mystics, um, Vashista Dvaita, Dvaita, 
um, Sankhya, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of Buddhism, a little bit of Taoism. If, you, if you're dabbling in all these things, you won't clearly understand anything. If you want to, if you, if you decide what path you want to follow, if you decide what path appeals to you, stick to that. Dig your well deeply in one place. So if you're drawn to Bhagavan, stick to Bhagavan, go deep into Bhagavan's teachings, then all these other things will be clear to you. But if you, before you've understood Bhagavan, if you then go to read Krishnamurti and then go to read Zen Buddhism and then go to read um, Taoism and then go to read uh, Christian mystics or Greek philosophers or what, you'll be getting, your, your mind will be full of so many confused ideas. As Bhagavan said, in this path, it's not a matter of learning, it's a matter of unlearning. So Bhagavan's path, is, Bhagavan's teachings are leading us along the path of unlearning. Bhagavan is simplifying everything, making everything very simple and very clear. So it's best to stick to one teaching, because otherwise if we begin comparing different teachings, we, get, we end up in a lot of confusion. Okay, so you want to take an, the yeah, last so, question? So some, someone just wrote something there. I don't know what they said. Um, something about Krishnamurti. I disagree. Oh, the same person. Yes, yes, yes. I just want to see what that... Uh, okay. I disagree. Krishnamurti on this topic, it's self-evident. If you are awareness, you can see for yourself. It's obvious. It's clear perception. When you say if you're awareness, what awareness? We are all awareness, but what? because we are now the adjunct mixed awareness, we are seeing all this multiplicity. If we see ourselves as the pure awareness that we actually are, there's nothing else to see. He's followed up with a couple more comments. Yes. The self without adjunct. The self without adjuncts means, the, our form, means pure awareness, awareness without any form. Uh, the Pure awareness is never aware of anything other than itself. That is perfect clarity. But so long as we see multiplicity, so long as we're talking about this multiplicity, we need to be clear. Uh, uh, all, all thoughts are objects. They appear in the form of, in the view of, only in the view of the subject. The subject is the first thought, the thinker. What is called the thinker is the subject, but the knower of all other thoughts. How can thoughts exist without a knower of them? So thought, all objects depend upon the subject. The subject is the adjunct mixed awareness. I am, I, I am this person. I am such and such a person. So the, the objects depend upon the subject, but subject depends upon the fundamental awareness I am. So, so long as the subject is looking outwards at objects, all this multiplicity seems to be real. When the subject turns its attention within to see who am I, it merges back in its source and the pure awareness alone remains. Krishnamurti may disagree with that, but this is, this is what Bhagavan teaches us. And this is, we can see this from our own experience. How can any objects exist without a subject? Without, without us to know them, how do any objects exist? How can there be thoughts without someone knowing the thoughts? Do thoughts exist independent of our awareness of them? If, he, if Krishnamurti says yes, then that's fine. That's his philosophy, but it's quite, quite different to Bhagavan's philosophy. 
Yeah, there are different paths for different yeah, people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, we, we're not here to quarrel with other philosophies, but we have to be clear. What is Bhagavan's teachings? It is this, what, I, what I'm presenting here is what Bhagavan taught us. If we want to follow Bhagavan's path, this is the path. If we want to follow other paths, that's fine. But why are there so many different um, spiritual paths, so many different religions? It's to suit people of different tastes, of different levels of maturity. That's fine. So we, we, we are not here to quarrel with anyone. But that doesn't mean we should confuse other ideas with Bhagavan's teaching. We have to be clear about what Bhagavan's teachings are. If Krishna Krishnamurti wants to teach something other, other than Bhagavan's teachings and people want to follow that, we have no quarrel with them. We are not here to quarrel with anyone. But for those who want to follow Bhagavan's teachings, we have to just point out, this is what Bhagavan said. Take it or leave it. It's up to, it's up to each of us to choose. Uh, someone else has asked, is it true to say that the subject itself is just a thought? Yes, because the subject, the knower of all objects, is ego. Ego is a thought. Why? Because ego is... But the, pure, the, the only thing that is not a thought is the pure awareness I am. Ego is that pure awareness I am mixed and conflated with adjuncts. Since the adjuncts are all thoughts, but the adjunct conflated awareness is a thought. If the adjuncts drop off, then the pure awareness remains. So what we actually are is not a thought. When we rise as ego, that is a thought. And that is the first thought. That's why Bhagavan often referred to ego as the thought called I or the I thought. And he says in, in the fifth paragraph of Nana, he says very, very clearly, uh, of all the thoughts that appear in the mind, the first thought is the thought called I. Or the thought called I is the first thought. Only after this rises do all other thoughts arise. Only after the first person appears do second and third persons appear. Without the first person, second and third persons do not exist. Second and third person means objects. First person means subject. That is the thought called I or ego. So everything else that seems to exist, seems to exist in whose view? Only in the view of ego. In sleep, there's no ego and therefore nothing else. In waking and dream, we rise as this ego. And as ego, we're always aware of ourselves as I am this body. And consequently, we're always aware of other things. So all objects appear in the view of the subject. The subject, we, we seem to be the subject, the knower of objects, so long as we're facing outwards, looking at the objects. If we turn our attention within to see who am I, the subject dissolves back into the source. That is, the adjuncts drop off, but the adjuncts are not holding on to us. We are holding on to the adjuncts. So if we, instead of holding on to the adjuncts or any other objects, if we hold on to ourselves alone, the adjuncts and all other objects drop off and the pure, sub, the, the, the pure awareness I am alone remains. The pure awareness I am is not the subject because in its view, there are no objects. There's only, in, in its view, there's nothing other than itself. So the next question? Yes. Okay. Right. It's in also in two parts. You said in your book that since mind is tired of projecting this entire world in waking state, it needs to go to sleep every night to regain its energy or something to that effect. My question is, how can mind regain energy in sleep when it doesn't even exist in sleep? <laughs> um, well, <laughs> yeah. Um, 
that is all explanations. Uh, that is, when we give an explanation like this, it's assuming the existence of a mind. Now there seems to be a mind. What happens to the mind in sleep? Obviously, there's no mind in sleep. But we find every day when we wake up, the mind reappears with fresh energy. So uh, if we want to explain this, we have to say it's like um, if you're... Uh, if your mobile phone, if you've been using your mobile phone every day, all day, towards the end of the day, the battery has run low. So when you go to bed at night, you plug it in to recharge it. And when you wake up in the morning, it's recharged. So the, um, the uh, um, sleep is, we, we can explain it in this way, but sleep is like the, the battery charger. We plug it, we, we, we plug our, um, but the, the difference, we can leave our mobile phone online. So it can be beeping in the middle of the night or calls can come in the middle of the night, even though it's charging. But this mind has to go offline in order to be recharged. We, we, we have to, in order for the battery of the PC to charge, we need to switch off the battery. We, we, we need to switch off, but we need to um, turn off the PC. And then only when the battery is charged, we can reboot it again. So none of these analogies are perfect, but these are all just to explain. But um, ultimately, all these ex explanations are um, superfluous. But it is our experience, is it not? But at the end of the day, we are too tired. Why do we fall asleep? Because we're too tired to continue thinking. We're too tired to continue projecting this world. So we go into a state where there's no mind at all. But somehow by being in that state in which there's no mind, uh, when the mind rises again, it rises with fresh energy. So we have to, we, it, it seems to us from the perspective of the mind in the waking and dream, but we are re-energized by sleep. Other machines don't recharge themselves by switching themselves off. But this mind is a very strange machine. But if you switch it off, it automatically recharges itself and then switches itself back on again. I'm not saying that the mind actually exists in sleep, but from our perspective in waking and dream, it seems that the mind is still, that at least in some form, it's still existing in sleep. Because otherwise, how does it rise again? If, so long as we ask such questions, all these explanations have, been, have to be given. But Bhagavan will say, does the mind exist even now? Investigate it and you'll find there's no such thing at all. So when explanations are given, we need to understand the level at which the explanations are given. Ultimately, no explanations are correct because there's nothing to explain. What is alone is. That is the ultimate truth. That is a jata. But so long as we're in this state of seeming manifestation, the state of mind, there's so many phenomena that we, for which we look for explanations. So explanations are given. But ultimately, these explanations are, cannot be more than relatively true. They cannot be absolutely true because the mind itself, the experiencer of all these things, is not absolutely true. It's only, it's only seemingly true. So but it, oh. if we think of it from a perspective of the mind, it is a wonder how by just switching this mind off for a few hours, or what seems to be a few hours from the perspective of waking state, how does this mind return with fresh energy? 
there, there must be some source of power from which the mind is deriving it. When we come, when we mind rises, we are so to speak, not literally, but so to speak, we are detaching ourselves from our reality. We never actually detach ourselves from our reality, but we seemingly separate ourselves from what we actually are, which is the pure being. So long as we're seemingly separated, we are expending our energy, projecting this world and everything. In order to be recharged, we need to subside back into our being and remain as being. So why I gave that explanation there is to show that the source of all power is our own being. Because sleep is nothing but a state of pure being, pure awareness. But from that state of pure awareness, the mind rises with fresh vigor. That means where, what is the source from which the mind is deriving its energy? It's only from our own being. So that's the purpose of that explanation. As far as it's good, as far as it goes, but if we if we if we begin to pull it apart, then yes, all explanations ultimately fall apart because all explanations are based on the assumption that there is actually such a thing called mind. If we turn within to investigate, is there such a thing called mind? Does this mind actually exist? We seem to be mind so long as we're looking outwards. When we turn within, all that we find is just the pure awareness I am. So then all the explanations become redundant. I do find if my computer's running very slowly, I just shut it down and reboot. Yeah. And then it's all fresh and fresh again. Right, right. Got a lot of clutter in it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's not so much a matter of the energy. It's often it slows down because of the the, the clutter of thoughts. But the, the PC has too many thoughts in its mind; it gets into confusion. So if you switch it off, it clears out the thoughts, and then it can start again with a fresh mind, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if in doubt, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and then the second part of his question is. Um, I'm very troubled by lust and desire for companionship, etc. I feel like I am weak by nature and feel despondent. What would Bhagavan advise to somebody like me? What should I do? Would doing giri production magically dissolve this vasana? It seems like the purpose of this birth of mine is to destroy the vasana which I feel I've strengthened foolishly over countless lives. Um. This, so long as we identify, so long as we rise as ego, we experience ourselves as a body. These bodies are biological organisms. These biological organisms reproduce uh, by sexual means. So the, this, this, this sexual desire is, is hardwired into this body. So for most of us, the sexual desire is very strong. It is something we we have to learn to live with. There's no solution to this because if you try to deny it, it's it's liable to to, to fester inside. If you try to satisfy it, it will continue burning. It's like pouring. If you pour petrol on the fire, it's going to blaze up more. But if you try to de, um, to to deny it. Any fuel, it will still be, be smoldering away there. If you want to be free of, of lust, of desire, of carnal desire, there is only one remedy. Know yourself as you actually are, because you are not the body. But so long as we experience ourselves as the body, we inevitably 
feel this uh, desire. So it's something we have to live with, and there's no there's no magic way of getting rid of it. Um, uh, the it it is one of those things that will remain with us until ego is annihilated. We may by taking more and more interest in self investigation that that may it may lose its strength to some extent, but but it'll still be there. That vasana won't die until the root its root dies. Its root is the dehabimanam, the dehabma buddhi, the false awareness. I am this body. So um, it is a problem for all of us. Bhagavan has sung in um, in verse six of Arunachala Manimara Malai. Um, uh, what he says in verse six is this is obviously not applicable to Bhagavan, but he sang this for our benefit. Kamari um, Endruni uh, Ambaral Endrume. Uh, um, uh, you, you are always called by your devotees Kamari. Kamari means the killer of Kar that that is Shiva is, is Kamari. He's a destroyer of, of karma. Karma in the sense of that I'm not saying karma, but karma. That is uh, the desire. The, Karma means desire in general, but it particularly means this carnal desire, which is a very, very basic desire. And then he says, Amam, yes, yes. Unuku um, idu uh, ama. Oh, oh, yes, yes. It's it, it, implying, yes, it's true, but that unukidu idu ama endru ayamurum arunachaleshwarane. But a doubt arises whether this name is fitting for you. Um, am I in? If it is true, if it is true that you're Kamari, how is it that um, though he is very uh, dirane surane, though he's very bold and very brit, uh, he's uh, dira means very courageous, and sura means a great warrior. Uh, I in him, though he's a great, uh, a very bold warrior. Um, uh, uh, though it is so, valanan, uh, val anganan, that 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 bodiless one, that is uh, karma, the god of uh, death. Uh, sorry, the god god of lust. When Cupid, in, uh, the more or less the equivalent of Cupid in in uh, in uh, Greek mythology or Roman mythology, that the, the god of love, he was once sent to. Um, when Lord Shiva was doing tapas, I was immersed in um, in uh, in self-absorption. The gods wanted some boon from they they wanted Lord Shiva to come and protect them from some demon or something. I can't remember details of the story. So they sent Karma to try and wake him up and uh, they, uh, and to, to put lust in his heart. And um, they wanted. I think they what they wanted was him to marry. Um, Parvati, the daughter of uh, of uh, the Himalayas, uh, in order for some for some purpose, I can't remember exactly what the reason was. Anyway, they sent him to, so he shot his arrow of, of love of lust at uh, at uh, Lord Shiva. Lord Shiva opened his third eye, that's the eye of knowledge, and burned him. So um, then, the wife of uh, of 
of karma, came and prayed to Lord Shiva, oh, you shouldn't destroy my husband. He was just sent on a mission by the, the devas. It was only with good intent they came to wake you up. And so Lord Shiva says, okay, he will remain without form, but he will, he will continue to live. So he's known as the, the bodiless one. That's the meaning of Anganan, the one who has no, no limbs, the one who is formless. Um, that, is, that shows what a dangerous fellow he is. Because he he creeps into our heart without it. He has no form, but he creeps into our heart and does all his mischief. So, so though he's very brave and very uh, bold, how how is it that he but he is able to enter the heart of one who takes refuge at the feet of you who are Karmari? So the feet of Shiva, the feet of Aranachala, they're a great fortress to protect us from all vasanas. But how this insidious vasana called lust enters our heart when we are taking refuge in the fort of your feet. So Bhagavan composed this verse. Here Bhagavan is recognizing this is a great problem for all spiritual aspirants because we all take the why are we spiritual aspirants because we still have this day baba we still uh, experience ourselves as i am this body so long as we experience ourselves as i am this body we are not free of this there's another story about narada at one time narada who is a great devotee of uh of uh, narayan he he was um because of his great devotion, he thought at one time that he had overcome lust. So he began to feel very proud of himself. Now I've conquered lust. And so to teach him a lesson, um, uh, um, Narayan sends him to a certain, on a certain journey. And on the way, he meets a very beautiful girl. He falls in love with her. She's the daughter of the king of the kingdom. Since Narada is a great sage, the king is very happy to give his daughter to his great sage. So he settles down to a married life and he has children and everything. Um, but then eventually Narayana appears to him and, and reminds him who he is. And then he, he falls at his feet and said and prays to Narayana to protect him from that ego but rose in him thinking he had conquered lust. So the, the purpose of that story is to show even the greatest of sages, so long as there's the slightest trace of ego in us, we are still a, a, a potential victim of lust. We may seem to have conquered it. We may seem to be, un, we may, may seem to be untroubled by such thoughts. But at any time, it can, they, they can raise their ugly head. That is, lust can raise its ugly head. So we, the only way to be free of, of lust is to uh, be free of ego. That is why Lord Shiva is called Kamari, because Lord Shiva is the destroyer. Arunachala Shiva, Arunachala Mena, Ahameinene Pava, Ahatebera Rupai Arunachala. That is the very purpose of Arunachala, is to destroy the ego. As Bhagavan says in the very first verse of Akshramulai, Arunachala, you, you eradicate or root out the ego of those who think of you in the heart as I. Of those who, who, who that is that word aham can either mean as I or in my heart, it has both meanings. So, those who turn within, uh, thinking of you in my heart, you root out their ego. So, the very purpose of Aranachala, the very purpose of the whole, all of Aranachala Stuti Panchakam composed by Bhagavan, the very purpose of all of Bhagavan's teachings, the very purpose of Bhagavan's avatara 
is nothing but annihilation of ego. So, and only when ego is annihilated can we be free of lust. So one of the one of the penalties we are paying for not surrendering ourselves completely, not yielding ourselves completely to him, is we have to live with this this uh, this uh, demon of lust in our heart. So if we want to be free of this demon, we need to uh, be free of ego, the root of all demons, the, the chief demon, the demon of all demons, the king of the army of demons. Well, all, all our Vishaya Vasanas are demons, but the, 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 the commander-in-chief of this uh, army, the king of uh, whose army it is, is ego. And one of its main commanders-in-chief one of his main uh, commanders, one of his generals, is this general called Lust. So he, it's a very, very powerful uh, tendency, but nobody can conquer without the uh, grace of Arunachala, without Arunachala striking down this ego, rooting out this ego. Then only we can be free of Lust. So it is a trouble. It's a trouble for all of us. Don't, don't, don't feel disheartened. We all, we all have to live with it so long as we live with ego. A couple more questions have come yeah, up. Right. Um, would Michael please speak about Kaur Lakshmi's great devotion and liberation in the context of Akshara Manamalai? Um, there is a there was a belief among devotees, but Kaur Lakshmi, but it, it was actually uh, Kirepati. Kirepati was an old lady. Who used? To, uh, she was a sadhu. She lived on the hill, and she would collect uh, greens from the hill, uh, all sorts of uh, uh, edible herbs. And she used to, with great devotion, she would go, then go and beg for some rice, and she would cook the rice and the greens, and she would feed Bhagavan. And she had so much love for Bhagavan, she eventually passed away. Whenever there was talk about Lakshmi, or often when there was talk about Lakshmi, Bhagavan was, uh, would start talking about Kirepati. So there was a, a belief among devotees that cow Lakshmi was Kirepati returned in the form of a cow. Whatever be the case, whether that's true or not, the fact is cow Lakshmi obviously had great love for Bhagavan. Um, uh, she would often come to Bhagavan's hall and only after Bhagavan gives her a banana or something would she go and uh, accept anything else. So she, there's so, I mean, there's so many stories about her devotion to Bhagavan. Um, and another remarkable thing, she, for, for many years, she gave birth to a calf every year and her calf would always be born on the day of Bhagavan's Jayanti. Um, so there was obviously a, a very remarkable connection between her and Bhagavan. So I think it's very probable what is generally believed by devotees, but um, it may well have been Kire Party came back in the form of Lakshmi. So because of her great love for Bhagavan, and she would often come and just stand near Bhagavan and Bhagavan would touch her and she would be just uh, as just like a, a yogi in samadhi should be just absorbed in herself. So long as she was in the presence of Bhagavan, she was perfectly happy. And eventually, when the time of her death approached, Bhagavan came and uh, touched her. And um, 
I can't remember. Some people say Bhagavan was touching her till the very end, but I think actually Bhagavan was with her for a while, and when she was quiet, he then left her, and then she quietly passed away. But it doesn't matter whether Bhagavan was actually there at the moment of death or not. Uh, by Bhagavan's grace, uh, her mind must have been drawn within, and she merged back into herself, because afterwards, Bhagavan wrote a verse in, in which he said, on such and such a day, in su under such and such a star, in such and su su such, and such a titty, that he gave me all the astrological um, uh, uh, um, positions at the time of her death, on such and such a day, um, uh, Pasulakshmi attained Vimukti. Vimukti means liberation. But often the word vimukti is used as in a formal sense. If someone has passed away, you, we, we say they've attained mukti. It doesn't, doesn't always literally mean that they've attained liberation, but at least they're liberated from this body. Um, but that's not the final liberation. But in the, So Devaraja Mudliya asked Bhagavan, Bhagavan, when you say vimukti, are you meaning it in the, in the literal sense or just in the figurative sense? And I can't remember exactly what Bhagavan said, but Bhagavan clearly indicated that it was literal. Um, so from that, we have to infer that Bhagavan granted her liberation. But how does Bhagavan grant us liberation? Bhagavan will never give liberation to us until we are ready for it. So only when we surrender ourselves to him will he devour our ego. So we have to infer that because of her great love for Bhagavan, she surrendered herself wholly to him. Her mind was drawn within by his grace and she merged back into him in her heart. That is the best explanation I can give, but who am I to explain all these things? This is, who can explain Bhagavan's grace? It is a, it is a great wonder. But it is clear evidence that liberation, though it is generally said the human birth is special for attaining liberation, that is probably generally true, but there are exceptions. Nothing is impossible for grace. So in the case of Kaulakshmi, because of her great... Uh, even how did she have so much love for Bhagavan? How do any of us have love for Bhagavan? It's only by his grace. So as he said, grace is the beginning, the middle, and the end. So in her case, grace worked in a very special way, because of the very special love she had for Bhagavan. Um, there, is a, 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 there is one question saying, if there's time, could you talk about Sashadri Swami? But before that, we have another sort of final question, I think, otherwise. After enlightenment, the I thought still arises, followed by one's Parabdha Karma. Is that correct? No. <laughs> what is the I thought is what? That is ego. Bhagavan defines liberation in uh, the last verse of Uludunapadu as destruction of ego. Uh, so, uh, that is, so long as there's ego, there is not liberation. When there's liberation, there's no ego. So no I thought rises, and there is no prarabdha. In some books, it is said prarabdha remains for the jnani, 
but Bhagavan, even in some of Shankara's commentaries, he says that. But that is said, as Bhagavan, Bhagavan explains that, that is an answer given to the questions of others. In Uludunapdu Anabandam, Bhagavan says, um, uh, well, he clearly implies in Uludunapdu itself, in the main Uludunapdu, in verse 38, he says, um, he says, uh, if we are a doer of actions, we will experience the resulting fruit. Investigating who is the doer of action, when one knows oneself by investigating who is the doer of action, doership will go. Karmam mundrum karalam. All the three karmas will uh, will uh, will drop off. Will cease to exist. Nittamam um, mukti This is the state of liberation, which is eternal. So Bhagavan clearly says here all three karmas. He doesn't say prarabdha will remain, but because. Because it's written there in so many books that prarabdha will remain for Vinyani, even as I say, in some of the, I think in Aparokshanabhuti, Shankara clearly says there's no prarabdha for Vinyani. He, he says it's uh, something to the effect, but it's a defilement on, of Vedant, on Vedanta to say that there's prarabdha for Vinyani. But in some of his commentaries, his bhashyas, he says there is prarabdha. But that is because those bhashyas were written for others, as Bhagavan implies here in, um, in verse 33 of Uludunapdu Anubandam. Sanchita agamyam uh, uh, gul, uh, do not adhere to Vanyani, prarabdha alone remains, saying that is an, uh, is an answer to the question of others. What he means by others, those who are not yet ready to come to this path and understand deeper truths. So for those who are not yet ready for it, it has to be said that. Why is it said? Because we see Bhagavan's body. And we say, oh, Bhagavan's body is there. Bhagavan's body has a prarabdha, so there must be nyan, prarabdha for the nyani. But Bhagavan is not the body. There may be a prarabdha for that body, but that prarabdha is not for Bhagavan because he is not the body. Um, then to, to drive home this point, but, but, that, but why, that, why that statement is false, he says, um, uh, if if a husband dies, if a husband has three wives, and if a husband dies, all three wives become widows. None of them remain unwidowed. Like that, if ego when ego dies, all the three karmas come to an end. So Bhagavan is very, very clear on that. Though it is said, even in some of Shankara's commentaries and in other, so many other Advaitic texts, it is said, but prarabdha remains for Vinyani. That is only an answer for the question of others. It is not the truth, is the implication. The truth is, when, because who is the doer of karma and who is the experiencer of the fruit of karma? Ego is the doer and ego is the experiencer. So without the doer, there can be no... Um, there can be no agamya because the agamya is the actions that the ego does under the sway of its vasanas. Without ego, there can be no agamya. And um, 
they, the sanchitta and prarabdha are the fruit of past actions. The fruit is to be experienced by whom? By the same ego who did those actions. But if the ego has died, how can there be a continuation of the experience of those fruit? But who is to experience them? There's no one there to experience them. So when, when liberation is nothing but the destruction of ego, and in the absence of ego, all the three karmas cease to exist. All the three wives are widowed. They have no husband, so they, they, they're, they're finished. Thank you, Michael. Um, I, I guess the reason I was confused about that was because it's often, and I guess this is what you're referring to, it's, I think you've even said in the past that like, but what I often hear is that um, the, the charge, the existing karma needs to unwind and that's the manifestation, that's what's observed by others when they look at an enlightened being. Yes, there, there's so many, there's so many uh, analogies are given. That is the, um, they, sometimes the, the jnana's body or prarabdha is compared to a burnt rope. A burnt rope still has the form of a rope, but it cannot bind anything. Uh, another analogy that is given is a fan. If you turn off the electric current, the fan will continue turning. So these sort of analogies are given, but these analogies are given for those who see the jnani as a body, those who are not willing to understand, but that body is not, though the jnani appears to us to be a, the body, the body is not what the jnani actually is. As Bhagavan often said, jnana me jnani, jnana alone is the jnani. Jnana means pure awareness. Jnani means what knows pure awareness. What can know pure awareness? Nothing other than pure awareness can know pure awareness because pure awareness can never be an object of knowledge. So the jnani is pure awareness itself. How can there be any prarabdha for pure awareness? How can there be any karma at all? Pure awareness is pure being, just being as it is. That is eternal. So the, the, what peop, the prarabdha or Ra, Mahar, Ramana Maharshi's like apparent behavior is just the apparent behavior of the body-mind and it's not tied to past actions or past... It, that is, on that day in Madurai, when that fear of death came to him and he turned his mind within, he merged back into his source, into Arunachala. What then shone through that body is Arunachala himself. God himself was shining through that body. So all the actions of that body thereafter were just the actions of God or guru, whatever we want to call it. God and guru are one and the same. So it, there's no longer any individual there, any person. It is the, the God himself has taken, taken over that body. So all the actions done by that body are actions done by God. So even in that context of actions done by God, like as those actions are done, does an I thought first come and then like no. an I? No, and it then, may seem to us, Bhagavan seems to say I. Bhagavan, did you see it? Yes, I saw it. If you ask, if you ask him, did you see, um, did you see the, uh, this or that? Did you see where I left my notebook? Bhagavan said, oh, yes, I saw it. It's just here. So there seems to be an I there, but that I is only in our view. If you put yourself in the position of Bhagavan, who is 
aware only of one eternal existence, how can there be any question of any of these other things? Yes, yes. Bhagavan sometimes gave the analogy of a lion in the dream of an elephant. The, there's a belief that elephants are so afraid of lions, but if an elephant uh, dreams of a lion, if a lion appears in an elephant's dream, the shock of seeing the lion will cause the elephant to wake up. Bhagavan said the guru is the lion, is the, is the lion in the elephant's dream. The elephant is ego, and the lion that appears in its dream and causes it to wake up is, is guru. The lion in the elephant's dream is unreal, but the awakening is real. Likewise, the name and form of guru is unreal, but the awakening, awakening brought about by the appearance of that name and form in our dream is real. Bhagavan is not what he seems to be. In our view, because we mistake ourselves to be a body, he seems to be a body. But he is not the body he seems to be. He is the pure awareness. But ever, that's why when he was asked what is about his true identity, whether he's a, an incarnation of this God or that God, he, he said, um, uh, Arunachala Ariyati Tarajivara Dahavari Jaguheil Arivairami Paramatman Arunachala Ramanan. Arunachala Ramana is the Paramatma but exists blissfully as awareness in the cave of the heart lotus of all different jivas, beginning with Hari. Hari means Lord Vishnu. So from the highest God down to the smallest insect, in the heart of every jiva, that which is shiny as awareness. At the fundamental awareness I am, that is our natural Ramana. That's, he says in the first two lines of that verse. Then in the second two lines, he says, Parival Ulum Uruha, a heart melting with love, Paranandidu Guheyandu, reaching that cave where the sublime supreme, supreme dwells. That means where our natural Ramana dwells. Where is that cave? That cave is the cave of our heart. Arivam uh, Viri Tirava, the eye of awareness opening. Nijamarivai, you will know the truth, you will know the reality, you will know this, what, what is ever natural. That means the, the pure awareness I am. Adu Veliyam, it will reveal it. Adu Veliyam means literally it, it will be outside, it will reveal itself. But important word in that verse is in the beginning of the third line, he says, Parival Ulamuraha, with a heart melting with love. So if we want to know Arunachal Ramana, who is always dwelling in our heart, our heart needs to melt with love. And only with a melting heart can we, can we dissolve back into him and enter the cave where he dwells. And then only will the eye of awareness be opening, be opened. So again there he's indicating bhakti is the mother of jnana. Love is the key to opening that the fortress of our heart. Thank you. Right. So the only remaining thing was whether you are finishing now or would like to talk a little bit about Sushadri Swami. 
I think it's probably better to st- stop now. I, I mean, I could talk about, say, Shadri Swami, but I don't have anything in particular to say about him, except we, we all know he was a, he was a great sage, and um, uh, he was uh, probably the first one who recognized the true greatness of Bhagavan. And only because of him, we uh, some devotees came to know about Bhagavan's body, about Bhagavan completely neglecting his body in Patalinga. So um, it was um, that is why Bhagavan went into Patalinga. That is, um, but but the Arunacheshwara temple. It's a twenty-five acre temple. It's a huge temple, and it. Uh, grew up over many generations. So first there would have been the inner sanctum and then a prakaram was built around that and another prakaram and another prakaram. So there are so many walls with gateways in and all there are nine gateways into the temple. Um, that is four outer gateways and, and uh, five inner gateways. Um, so as the temple was growing, they built in the outer prakaram a thousand pillar mandapam was built. And when thousand pillar mandapams are built, they usually raise the platform to about maybe 10 or 15 feet high. Um, yeah, it's probably, I would say 12, 15 feet high or, or, or more. It's probably, probably about 15 feet high. So there was a, in the place where they were building, were to build that, there was an old shrine. It was probably the samadhi of some ancient saint. So it was a small shrine built of stone with a, a linger inside. So when they built the thousand pillar mandapam, they built it around that and they built some staircase going down to, into that patalinga. But because there are so many shrines in the temple, that was one of the shrines that was neglected. Nobody ever paid any attention to it because the thousand pillar mandapam itself well, at least nowadays, it's always closed, except at the time of the festi- festi- festivals. It's generally it's closed. Um, but I suppose in most days, it wasn't completely closed. There was a way inside. So Bhagavan was sitting in the thousand pillar mandapam, absorbed in himself. And um, some other boys of his age, seeing a young boy of their age sitting there um, uh, like a stone, they were very curious about him. So they started to, uh, to tease him and to throw stones at him and everything. So because of this, in order to uh, avoid uh, disturbance, he went down into Patalingam. He didn't want he didn't want to be a trouble to anyone. So by by sitting there in the thousand pillar mandapam, he was. Uh, drawing unnecessary attention. So he just went down into the, um, maybe at nighttime, he went down into Patalingam. And we don't know how long he was there, but it must have been for at least for some weeks. And nobody knew him; he was there, so he wouldn't have had any food or, or water or anything. And he was sitting there motionless for so long, but the because that was a neglected shrine and because you have to go downstairs to get in it, naturally dirt and dust accumulates in there and moisture accumulates. So it is a, there was a, um, though there may have been paving stones underneath, on top of that dirt had accumulated. And so it was sort of um, damp and um, muddy and uh, lots of insects were there. 
And because he was sitting on that damp ground, the insects began to gnaw away at his thighs. And so there were open wounds on his thighs. And those open wounds opened. I mean, those open wounds, they naturally started bleeding and pus formed. And so the combination of coagulated blood and pus sealed his body to the ground. One day, um, well, say Shadri Swami must somehow have noticed this. Maybe he saw the, the boys throwing stones there or something. So say Shadri Swami had gone down into that shrine. And some devotees coming to the temple, they noticed some boys playing in the thousand pillar mandapam. So they went to see what they were doing, and they saw they were throwing stones down in the, into, the, into this patalingam. So they chased the boys away, and then out came Seishadri Swami. So they were very surprised to see Shadri Swami there. And they said, Swami, Swami, are you okay? Why were those boys pestering you? Shadri Swami said, I'm okay, but go and see the little Swami inside. And then they went down. And because it was so dark, they, they brought a, a, a kerosene lantern or, or whatever light was available. Um, and... Uh, I mean, in those days, there'd have been no electric light, so it would have been a, 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 a hurricane lantern they took down into the shrine. And there they saw these young boys uh, sitting there with um, uh, completely oblivious. So they gently called him. He didn't respond. They touched him. He didn't respond. Then they were, they were overawed. But they decided this is not a good place for him to be uh, because of uh, so they gently tried to lift his body. And when they lifted his body, because his, his thighs were sealed to the ground, the wounds opened and uh, fresh blood started flowing down his legs. Then they were so awed that, uh, to see such a young boy in such a state of deep absorption. So very gently they carried him out and they, they carried him to the Ilope tree. Um, that's a big, the, the, a big tree inside one of the inner prakarams of the temple. And that's behind the gate. So they, uh, that gate is usually opened only at festival times. So they, they um, I think, I think it's behind the tree. I'm not sure. I can't remember. Anyway, they, they, they put him there and there they were keeping an eye on him. And, Obviously, he hadn't eaten for anything for weeks. So they, um, when the Abhishekam was done in the mother shrine in the temple, they brought the Abhishekam milk and they offered it to him. And since he didn't respond, they opened his mouth and slowly, slowly started feeding him. And after some days, he slowly started coming back to uh, body awareness and um uh, so he was there for some time. Um, because of the con he'd been sitting there, his the coping he had been wearing for the I mean, he came on the first of September. Since the first of September, he'd been wearing a coping, and much of that time he had been sitting down in Patalingam. So the coping obviously had become rotten and it fell off. And so he was actually sitting there for some uh days or weeks, he was sitting naked under the Ilope tree. Then some devoted, then Deepam was coming. Deepam is in that year. I'm not sure whether it was in November or December, but uh, Deepam was coming. So uh, some devotees came to him and said, Swami, uh, um, this big festival is coming. 
and um, there will be police from all different districts here, and all pilgrims will be coming. So it won't look uh, it won't look appropriate if you're sitting here naked. So they offered him a loincloth, and they I think they actually picked him up and lifted him up and tied the loincloth on him. So such was the state of Bhagavan's. Uh, uh, complete absorption in himself. He was totally unaware of the, the world and the surroundings and everything. So it is thanks to say Shadri Swami that um, the, the world came to know about Bhagavan uh, through that incident. Um, there are many stories that can be told about say Shadri Swami, but um, always he had great, great love for Bhagavan. It is said that say Shadri Swami, because of his um, his yogic powers, he could read people's thoughts. And it is one story that is told is one day when Bhagavan was in Virupakshi cave, he came and he was looking at Bhagavan. And he then he said, it is not clear what this one is thinking. Uh, that is, he could read other people's thoughts, but in Bhagavan's case, there were no thoughts to read. Um, so there, there are so many stories about that. But uh, um most of those stories are about, say, Shadri Swami rather than about Bhagavan, but he was a very great sage, and uh, he had great love for Bhagavan. Bhagavan had great love and affection for him because they are, they are chips of the same block. They are both in the same state of, uh, of, of jnana. Um, but, say, Shadri Swami had a different role. Bhagavan had the role to be the, the guru for the whole world. So, in that sense, Bhagavan had a very, very special role. Um, but he recognized the greatness of Sai Shadri Swami, and Sai Shadri Swami, of course, recognized his, his greatness. There's a saying in Tamil, Palm being Kal, Palm be Ariyum. That is, the, the legs of a snake are known only to a snake. That is a saying that means the, the, the true jnani is, can be known only by the true jnani. He used to go into shops and throw the contents into the street, I believe, and then yes. people didn't mind because their sales went shooting up. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. There's so many stories like that. So many stories out there like that, yes. And then when Sushadri Swami passed away, Bhagavan made some comment, I think, didn't he? Yes, I think so. I think Bhagavan may have directed his, uh, how he should be buried and everything, but I'm not sure. I can't, I can't remember that. I, believe, I think you're right. I think Bhagavan did say something, but I can't now remember what it was. Om namo bhagavate sri haranachala ramanaya 